A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 154 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, and your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman, and with me like the remorse of Ben Kenobi, the EU guru himself, the count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. Though, he of course didn't know you had been born and thought he just killed your mother, so that's actually me talking vicariously. But don't worry, all my BS will make sense after episode 6. It's oh, all a red three? No, two? No, actually, I think you're gonna need a little bit of rebels. <laughs> hey, Nate, how you been, my man? How you been? Oh, good God. Uh, well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Belated. Um, yeah, my Christmas break has been uh, garbage so far. Let's see. We started out with me being sick as a dog. Uh, I had my last day at the physical school building, so now I'm officially the online teacher now. But my last day was sparked by, uh, as I came home, starting to feel sick and winding up being sick for most of the break so far, leading into uh, Christmas Day. Uh, us having trouble with one car, so we took the other one to go to my wife's brother's house. Uh, and on the way back, um, its transmission went. So we've had one car get fixed. Now the other car we just finally found out today is going to need a new transmission that's going to cost more than we bought the car for uh, less than a month ago. But there are no lemon laws in Georgia for used cars, only for new ones. And... Uh, uh, to top that off, I managed to be so stressed out over the whole thing that I bit my nails. I tend to do that when I'm very stressed out, and in the process of doing that, broke one of my teeth just before mm. managing to hack chunks out of two of my fingers both times while opening up a piece of Star Wars-based mail. So, this last few days have sucked. I'm really looking forward to getting 2014 over with, because apparently it's been the year of the curse. The dark side of Sith misclaims you. Wow. Apparently. I'm assuming that aside from remodeling, yours has been better than mine. How goes the <laughs> how goes the whole remodeling to save the comics thing? Oh, that was that was such an an interesting two days. I mean, literally, I'm still in the process of rearranging. I, I happen to go downstairs, and you know, all my comics. The studio I have has two shelves that were built into the garage floor. Uh, my garage is literally half the house you know up above me i've got the two kids rooms uh the master bathroom the master bedroom and the other bathroom so like literally over half the house is above me so i've got this gigantic space and you know I, I, the one set of walls is up against the side of the house that's not underground and that's the side i ended up having an issue with and what, what it was is i've been having all my comic boxes on the one pre-built shelf that's right next to my legends bookshelf and everything seemed 
copacetic fine you know i come down there and i I go to look for a certain one comic uh you know of a marvel comic no less and i was like okay i know i've seen this cover you know so i i got it in my head that i i own this number four of the new warrior somewhere so i decided i'm gonna go through every box until i find it which is a daunting task in and of itself i get to i'd say about well let me count the eighth box down uh and as i'm pulling it out I reach around the back and the bottom side, the box is sopping wet. And I I tell you, I had a visceral physical reaction in that one moment. I wanted to immediately start vomiting. Like I had a hangover and I just woke up. I mean, I, I never felt so sick because of something like that. And I hadn't even opened the box yet. You know, luckily when I opened up the box, you know, the, the comic boxes, the small ones have a second internal cardboard flap and the moisture had gone through the outside of the box and was just touching that first one. So all the comics inside were fine. You know, I was just, but I, I still in that total panic mode. So everything came out and I'm looking at it. And what it was, was that comic box had pressed up against the cinder block enough to draw moisture in through the brick. Uh, and so then of course, you know, I pulled them all away, you know, three inches and stuff and I'm contacting everybody I know that knows anything about this kind of stuff. And everyone's coming back with, get them the hell out of there. And I'm just like, Oh God, you know, cause this is my zone, man. All my stuff is in my zone. I got to You know, this is my, my, my Zen place, you know? And to think that I'm going to have to move them out of here was like something that drove me nuts. So I was sitting here racking my brain with different options and stuff. And, and, and I've got a gap between the two on this one shelf where my pantry fits exactly in it when I measured it out. I mean, almost perfect. And I'm talking to my dad and he's like, well, why don't you put some, you know, some visqueen down, some black plastic down behind it as a little vapor barrier and then, you know, leave them in that. So in the end, that's what I ended up doing. And I, I, I mean, I went out of my way. I added bracings to the back of it and stuff because, you know, I, I read up this really cool article about an in-wall comic shelf. And the guy says, you know, the boxes usually weigh about 50 pounds each. So I'm looking at 200 pounds per shelf. I'm like, okay, I got to reinforce these. So I'm in the process of reinforcing it, but I've got it in its location. I did all this stuff yesterday. Just, you know, I was supposed to be cleaning the house. My wife came home just lividly pissed off with me because, of course, when I clean the house, I start in the garage every time. And that just sets her off. And I'm like trying to explain to her. I'm like, you know, I wanted to go up there. But every time I went up there, I think about the comics and I'd start to feel like I need to vomit. And so I was literally down here working all day fixing that problem to the point where just to even start this recording, I had to move stuff because I'm still, you know, up to my shoulders sitting in my chair with with boxes and stuff everywhere because I had to pull things off the shelves and stuff. The upside is, though, I've got plenty more space to add more stuff. I was like, where am I going to put all these figures and figurines? Well, now I've got a spot for that. So there's that upside. But, man, talk about a lucky break that none of my comics were ruined because everything I saw about moisture damage and mold and things of that nature, they treat it like cancer. They, They say, find the comics that got it, pull them out, destroy them. And I'm like, what? Like, to destroy? Wait, what? No. I mean, so yeah, I was beside myself with grief for the last, I'd say, 48 hours. It's been insane. And even now, I'm still like, I'm hoping that what I've done is going to be enough. I mean, there's a gap between the plastic and the actual pantry thing itself. And I put it in a spot in the corner where there's never been any moisture problems. I've had a piece of cardboard art that's been up against the cinder block in this corner the entire time. And it's not wet at all. So I'm like... Please, God, let that be it for this, because my last studio, it actually flooded a lot. And I had to build shelves that lifted everything up off the ground. I never had a moisture issue with the comics, even though there was literally flooding going through the studio. My desk was up on pallets. My chair was on pallets because there would literally be watered like Dagobah down below me. And I never had a mold or or moisture issue with my comics then. So I'm like praying that this puts it all behind me because... 
I tell you, man, I mean, you've got a collection as big as mine. When that becomes threatened, dude, nausea city. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's just, I don't know. I The closest I've had to deal with something like that was moisture coming in through the floor of a back closet where I used to keep my long boxes. That's actually why, oh. I mean, we haven't had to do a whole lot of remodeling or anything, but I had to move everything. So now for us, it's kind of the trick. Now that I'm working from home, they're like, yeah, here, let us get you the gear that you need to work from home. And they've got us a MacBook, an iPad, an iPhone, a new laptop. And they said, okay, well, we're going to get you a couple of big external monitors so you can sit them out and use them, have like the, the kids' grades up on the one thing and then have the actual computer system ingenuity up on the other one. And at this point, because of that issue in the closet, all of my comic long boxes, which is a ton of them, are sitting basically taking up most of the floor in our guest bedroom. It, our guest bedroom is basically like a storage room at this point. And there's really mm -hmm. nowhere for me to put a, a new desk and a setup to work unless I'm just going to forego the extra monitors that they're suggesting that we use to make it so much easier. There really isn't a place to work unless I find another thing to do with those comic boxes. And right now there just isn't anywhere. I mean, the only other thing I could do is basically just start sitting them along the walls wherever there's wall space, you know, so that they can fall and crush cats or something. Now, is there a bed in this room? There is no bed. There oh, because no I was going to say you could always lift the bed and have them under there, but uh, maybe no, it's the desk. comic boxes, it's boxes for shipping stuff out for, you know, eBay and Amazon and whatnot, and then, you know, just kind of odds and ends sorted out in there. Um, speaking of odds and ends and needing storage space, though, something, and people are like, okay, we're done hearing about your home trouble, for the love of God, I don't live with you. Um, uh, <laughs> one thing came up in our recent review of the year, we were talking about games. And when talking about those, we tended to run down all the different things coming out from Fantasy Flight Games since the beginning of the year. Uh, there has been one more RPG book released that was released after we recorded called Stay on Target. It's for the Starfighter Ace characters. It's like a guide for those types of characters for uh, Age of Rebellion. But also, more importantly, right as we were recording, I got the shipping notice that Imperial Assault had actually been released. Um... I did an overview of all the contents of the boxed set on YouTube. It runs about an hour. And I've got a tutorial game at some point that I'm going to put together so people can see how it actually works. But basically think of Armada as the fleets, X-Wing as the Starfighter dogfights, and then Imperial Assault is basically any type of battle that would be on the ground. You have 59 different tiles. You take the tiles and set them up kind of like a puzzle into a map that is pre-designed for each type of mission, whether it's a skirmish mission or it's um, a campaign mission. The skirmish missions are basically one-on-one -on -one battles, kind of like you would with X-Wing, where you have a certain amount of points to build your squad. In this case, it's squads of characters who fight on the ground, as opposed to starfighters or anything. Um, the campaign is more like one mission leads to the next, leads to the next, based on the outcome of the previous one. But uh, it plays pretty well. Um, you have squad versus squad. The miniatures are not painted in this case. Um, the only odd thing about it is so far is the way that the expansions would work. We've spent some time on the show talking about how the uh, LCG, the living card game, is unique amongst card game models in that you don't have to buy booster packs and just guess what's in them. Instead, you buy a, a force pack and you know exactly what's going to be in that expansion for that game and how when it comes to, say, something like X-Wing... Yes, when you buy a new miniature, you're getting that new little miniature, sure, but you're also getting 
new ship cards, new upgrade cards, and it's really the cards that make the difference. Like, an X-Wing miniature is nothing until you choose a character for it, like Wedge or Luke or whoever. That's what gives the ship its attributes and all that kind of stuff. Um, this game kind of straddles the ground between that whole idea of buy a miniature, but do it more for the extra cards and stuff you get, and the mindset of let's be consumer-friendly as best as possible, because the way it winds up working is there are 34 miniatures in that boxed set, including one that's an ATST that is has one of the toughest-to-put-on pieces I've ever seen in a plastic model ever. Uh, but then you also have other characters that you don't have miniatures for. Han, Chewie, General Weiss, who is another guy inside an ATST. Um, there's a handful of characters where... You have their card that you play with them that has all their stats and everything, but instead of having a miniature to represent, represent them, you have a token. Kind of like the little tokens you get in the miniatures game for the RPG to represent your characters on those maps as you get the hang of playing an RPG and not needing a map in those cases. Um, the way it works is wave one of all the expansion packs for this game are those characters. So like Han Solo. You get a Han Solo card and a token. You can play Han Solo in the box set game that you buy and not have to worry about it. You can play as Han. But if you want a miniature instead of a token to play as Han, you gotta buy the expansion. And the expansion would come with the Han miniature, but then also extra upgrade cards, skirmish mission cards. Basically, it becomes sort of buying something you've already got, in a sense, because you can still play with Han with a token without needing the miniature, but then you get that extra stuff. So it's basically making it so that any of these expansions for Wave 1, unless you want the extra cards, you don't have to buy that expansion. But if you want the miniature, yeah, you're going to have to buy that, but you're going to get all the other cards with it. Every single expansion right now is one of those characters for which you only have a token, but that you can still play with. And the expansions run anywhere from 10 bucks if it's got one miniature, uh, 13 bucks if it's got two, because some of these cards represent two different lower-level characters. Uh, 15 bucks if it's three, like the Rebel Trooper, you get one card to represent it, but then three different tokens because it represents three different troopers instead of having to have a different card for each one. Uh, all the way up to a $20 expansion pack, which is that other ATST with General Weiss in it. It's an odd decision. It plays well. It's got a ridiculous amount of tokens, a ridiculous amount of cards. I think if you count all the individual miniatures and cards and tokens in that initial boxed set that runs you $100, more like 80 if you get it somewhere like Miniature Market where I tend to get mine, but 100 bucks. Um, there's something along the lines of 600, just shy of 600 components in that box set. So Whoa. very complicated, but fun. I still personally prefer the Starfighter combat and sort of that freeform, faster-moving combat of X-Wing, and I'll probably still prefer Armada eventually over this too. But for ground combat, it's pretty cool, but it's definitely not a pick-up-and-play kind of thing. Um, I was reminded of that because I, right before we got hit with all the, hey, you're going to have to spend thousands of dollars on the car again thing, one of the things I did was run out to the local Super Walmart and pick up another of those giant tackle boxes that I use to keep X-Wing in. So now I've got one sitting there when Armada's ready, and one that perfectly fits the stuff for Imperial Assault.
Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. Now this episode, we turn once again to you Beyonders. This week, your feedback is center stage. Now consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. I do want to kick us off a quick contest here uh, in acquiring things for from the Star Wars home video library. I recently acquired a beta copy that I was needing of the films. And as part of the lot in which I acquired that, they also included some DVDs, but I've already got copies of these DVDs. So rather than just letting them sit here, I figure, hey, why not you know give them out here through the show? Turns out what I have sitting here is the prequel trilogy, and a bonus DVD that was exclusive at the time to Walmart. So, if you're interested, here's what you could win through this contest. We've got the original widescreen two-disc DVD releases of The Phantom Menace from 2001, right? It was released in 2001, even though the film was in 99. It first came out on VHS. DVD was a couple years later. The two-disc original DVD release in widescreen also of Attack of the Clones from 2002, and Revenge of the Sith, from 2005. Plus, with it, the single DVD disc release of what's referred to as the Story of Star Wars. It was a special release that basically does a quick recap of the original trilogy and a recap of the prequels up to the beginning of Revenge of the Sith that was released as a special bonus disc packed in, uh, in a separate DVD case, but packed into the, the wrapping, if you were to buy Revenge of the Sith in 2005 at Walmart. So we have here what may be a disc that a lot of folks have never seen before, plus the original versions of the three prequel films. Obviously, they're a little older, the cases themselves a little bit worn in terms of the plastic, but the discs, great shape, the inserts, great shape. A chance to get this trilogy if you haven't picked it up before without actually having to drop any money on it, and you get that bonus DVD as part of your collection here. So, if you want to win these, very simple. Email swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. In the subject line, put DVD giveaway. And in the body of the email, make sure you tell us your name and your mailing address in case you win. Now, these feedback episodes are being released throughout most of January. So let's just make it a nice, clean, easy to remember end for the nerds out there like me. We'll say this contest deadline is the Ides of March, right? From Julius Caesar, March 15th. Gives you plenty of time to get your entries in, but hey, only one entry per person, folks. Good luck. That's right, Beyonders. Good luck to each and every one of you. Now, starting the episode proper, our feedback starts with which email, Nate? Our first one here comes in from Daniel Contreras, who says, and he brings up a very valid point, I think, in this one. A subject line with Star Wars comic author question. He says, Hey guys, congrats on another year of successful and entertaining podcasts. I had a quick question for your feedback episode. Your look back at Dark Horse got me wondering, in the 20 plus years of publishing, were there any female writers for any of their comics? For the life of me, I can't think of any. I know of Jan Dersima's talented work as an artist. And on the book sides of things, Del Rey has been good at bringing in female authors like Karen Travis and Christy Golden. But where are the comic book counterparts? 
Were there any female writers for Star Wars comics? Dark Horse, Marvel, one-shots, series, perhaps even in kids' magazines? It seems like there would be a few, but I can't think of any. Ever. Daniel. The only one that rises to my mind is uh, Star Wars Legacy Volume 2. The writer on there was a uh, husband and wife. Is a... Uh, yeah, it was I'm the asking. wife doing most of the writing and the husband doing most of the artwork, Karina Bechko and uh, Gabriel Hardman. Okay, yeah, I wasn't sure because the last names, I'm like, husband and wife, that must be one of those aspects of she was famous before the last name changed, thus she kept the last name. That makes sense. But that's the only one that just readily jumps to my mind because I remember seeing in a couple articles and stuff like that inside uh, the Dark Horse magazines and stuff, there'd be a little promo about it and it would have pictures of her uh, and it would be talking about it, but... I honestly, I can't think of many others beyond that in the comic industry. Uh, moving into Marvel, I don't think that's even going to change, unfortunately. You know, I can't really think of a lot for Dark Horse. Uh, the, the aforementioned uh, Karina Bechko being the exception. And they made a big deal about the fact that she was a woman writing a Star Wars comic at the time. Uh, Dark Horse tended to be doing this big thing to try to promote female comic writers in general. And wrapped up in that whole thing was Karina Bechko writing for Star Wars Legacy Volume 2. Um, beyond that, I can't think of a lot that were for Star Wars, at least. I mean, artists more often than writers. I will say, though, that the original Marvel series, uh, the first time around, uh, for them it's a, a huge example. Because they had differing writing teams, but they tended to be kind of like most ongoing series. It wasn't a different writer every time. It wasn't a different writer every couple of weeks. For the most part, it was one writer in a particular era, and then when that person left the title, somebody new came in and took it over for an era. And then they kept doing the same thing as they went along. Uh, for the Marvel series, for basically uh, the last chunk of issues leading up between Empire and Jedi, and then pretty much all the issues taking place after Return of the Jedi. So the first post-Return of the Jedi EU stories, in a sense, now legend stories, uh, they were all written by Mary Jo Duffy, who picked up with issue number 70 and ran pretty much, like I said, through the end of it. Um, she's the one who created the Toffs, the Nagai, the nagai Toff War, uh, the Hiromi that are like a race of insectoid Jar Jars. Um, so, in a sense, Marvel had a woman essentially ahead of her time in terms of Star Wars comic writing in this sense, it seems, uh, and someone who, at least for its era, was highly, highly influential. I don't think we could underestimate Mary Jo Duffy's term on Star Wars and its influence. I would say probably she was the most influential of the Star Wars writers at that time because she had so much freedom to bridge the gap between films in the first place and then to step in and give us something beyond the films so to speak i'm trying desperately to find lists and stuff and the biggest list for star wars that i can think of is the books i mean you know you've got uh kathy tears and i know i'm probably going to get some of these wrong because i'm not actually having a list in front of me i'm just trying to draw off my names in my head christy golden karen travis karen miller uh you've got uh, karina on the comic side of things Oh, man, I know there's probably two more. I mean, what, uh, Kevin J. Anderson's wife worked with him on those projects, if that counts. I mean, there definitely needs to be more in the regard of recruiting. Like, I would love to see Patricia Briggs write a Star Wars book. Like, uh, you know, maybe not her, her Mercy-style books, but the uh, Dragon's Blood, Dragon's Bones, and the Raven Strike and Raven Shadow. When I read those, they had a, a 
mystical fantasy feel, but yet also felt very Star Warsy with the way they were using magic and things of that nature. So, I mean, it'd be kind of cool to see, you know, as they move forward, them actually going out and trying to hunt down some really good female writers and stuff and bring them in because I don't know. I'm not one of those fans that I could care less what's really, you know, the gender going on here. I want a good story and be it a guy or a girl, you know, let's hear the good stories, but let's not limit it to who we're going to even ask to do the stories. Yeah, I would briefly add there, uh, just kind of doing my own uh, quick look. Uh, Anne Nocenti wrote I'll See You in the Throne Room back in the Marvel series. Uh, Louise Simonson did some work back with the Marvel series. Um, I mean, granted, she only did Confident in the Clouds, Hello, Best Been Goodbye, and then for Dark Horse, River of Chaos. But, I mean, these are all pretty long ago. You would think, I mean, actually, historically, I would say this is like when I teach my students, my, my AP students, about Islamic society. Most societies around the world, women start out with very little rights, and the amount of rights they have increases over time until they're basically equal to men. Islamic society being the opposite. During Muhammad's time, women had a lot more rights in many Islamic nations or Islamic regions. And then as the Umayyads and the Abbasids and all these different caliphates come around afterwards, women's rights go down the tubes until now in places like Saudi Arabia, women are still having to slowly earn the equal rights that you would think that they would have because that's the way it is in much of the world. Um, Star Wars, as history has gone on, as more and more women have gotten into the comic industry, as women have become more prominent in the entertainment field in general, it seems like Star Wars' heyday with women creators was in the original Marvel era and since then, it's taken an absolute nosedive. Star Wars is the opposite of the progress you would expect in terms of gender diversity in an entertainment field. Yeah, hopefully that will change. Uh, one other author I'd forgotten was Barbara Hambly. Uh, you know, she wrote, what, two or three books as well. But yeah, hopefully that's a step uh, with the new sequel trilogy and stuff with who the leads and stuff are. Hopefully that's something that's going to go away. This next one comes in from Zach James, who asks... What he refers to as a fan feedback niche question in his subject line here. He asks, or he says, Hi guys, I always enjoy your feedback episodes, but have never really felt the need to offer up anything of my own until now. My friend and I have been arguing about the prequels for nearly a decade now, and without going into tedious amounts of detail, she finds them to be wretchedly written, poorly acted CGI misfires. Yesterday, after a typical round of bickering about them, she pointed to one of my bookshelves and said, the only reason you like those movies is because you've read all the books. That's really been stuck in my brain. Looking back, I know for a fact that what Nathan refers to lovingly as the Stover effect is a real thing for my Episode 3 experience. I picked up the novelization when it was released and only finally saw the movie when it ended up on DVD. Hey, put down the pitchforks. I'm sorry I missed it. Freshman year of high school was a weird time for all of us. In hindsight, I do deeply regret skipping the cinema ritual. When I finally did see the movie, I wondered why the best parts were left out. Before the canon crisis, I was never bothered by having the books, comics, and games inform and color my view of the movies. I mean, hey, there was a handy-dandy canon code and everything. When told Padme was just barefoot and pregnant, I knew it was A-OK -okay to bring up Padme's involvement with the Delegation of 2000, because there was a nod from Lucasfilm that it was all official. Even then, I knew it was a hesitant and vague nod, but it still counted. Now that the meaty bits of the novelizations have been spun off into legends with everything else, I'm left to ponder how to talk about movie shortcomings. 
What am I to say when someone asks me to explain Anakin's seemingly abrupt fall into Sheev's grasp? Okay, no one who's asking will say Sheev. I can't use my gut reaction for absurdity and say, He's a big scaredy cat who's afraid of dying. It's all Obi-Wan's fault for taking him to that frozen dying star place. Because it's all a legend now. Well, I guess I could say it with an added caveat and a bit of explaining about what is and was canon. I could always go with the more rational stretching the logic of the film's route. Remember episode one and episode two? A few moments in plot points suggest that old Paps was doing it even back then. That does lead me to the $20,000 question, though. Has Star Wars lost its depth, temporarily at least, without anything officially connecting the sometimes shoddily written prequel dots aside from the Clone Wars? What am I left to tell that stupid part of my brain that's hung up on what is or isn't official continuity? I understand this is a bit of a silly notion, as this has to be a particularly niche problem, but I feel like you and your listeners would understand what I mean better than others, as we all, I assume, come from a similar wellspring of past stories and at some point took and still take some measure of solace in what is or isn't official canon. The new canon hasn't really touched the prequel era yet. Is there any backstory, any depth that we can add to those films that isn't followed by from a certain point of view? Help me. You are probably my only hope. Zach. Well, you know, Legends being removed as backstory does indeed hurt the overall plots of canon. And it isn't silly because many EU fans are still coming to grips with all this. You know, I mean, I'm going through the, the steps of denial all the time. That's why I've adopted the moniker of the bipolar Star Wars fan. Some days I'm intrigued and optimistic about the fact that everything that was backstory is now open to be told. But then there's this cynical part of me that comes in and goes, you know, they ain't going to do it. You know, they're not going to go back and fix Revenge of the Sith. You know, Stover gave us a great book and, and they gave us that little that little comment of, well, it's canon so much as it lines up, which basically means it's not canon at all, that the film is still canon and only the parts of the film that were rewrote in the book count. So that's it, just ugh. so, yeah, I go back and forth to that kind of stuff. Uh, I got to admit, though, with your arguing over the prequels, uh, I mean, who doesn't? have somebody that they know care for or love that has an issue with it i think the public assumption was that the prequels just blew across the board and i'm in a lot of ways in the same boat as you with the stover effect because i read that novel before i watched the movie and i watched it on the the day it was released i watched it on my birthday at 1 a.m uh and so you know when i came out i was loving the fact that even though aspects of the book didn't show up i knew what should have been there and knowing what should have been there from the book, that part of the story was really good. So, you know, she may be right in a lot of ways about the love of the prequels. You know, a lot of us EU fans were able to accept the prequels because we had the EU filling in those backstories, those weak plot points that Lucas threw at us. You know, I mean, suddenly we're looking at, at Tantive Four flying off at the end of episode three, and then we find out later, oh, no, that wasn't that. that was, that's a new ship, the Sundered Heart. Why? Because Lucas forgot to check the models, or he didn't verify that the models were the same. It's just this classic aspects of, oh, well, we just didn't think that one through. You know, and the EU was always really good at going back and fixing that, and which gets me to that other thing you talk about, that darned nod. It wasn't until I saw this article on Canon Wars that really opened my eyes to a lot of, and I hate to even use the word lies, 
but that bipolar side of me leans me into that angry side. And I do feel like I've been lied to. And I hate to say it, but I feel like Sue Rostoni and Lee Lynchy were the biggest perpetrators of that lie, constantly telling us that this was all canon. Lee Lynchy flat out saying that he, he would go out of his way to keep it all one continuity. Yeah, good luck with that now, Leland. But again, it was the Lucas licensing aspect that sold us that nod, that that lie of the nod that it was all official canon. And they say official canon with the quotes, because even though it's official canon in the quotes, it's still below film canon. And that's where that whole hierarchy came to be and stuff. And who better to sell the lie than the guy that's tracking it all with the holocron anyway, Leland. And I hate to throw you under the bus like this, buddy, because for years you were my defender. You were the guy I was like, you need to be telling Lucas to stop crapping all over the product. But the reality here, and I, and I am still wrapping my brains around this, is Lucas was always saying it was a parallel universe. Look at what Pablo Hidalgo was saying. Two universes. Everyone was saying it but Leland and Sue and the Lucas licensing group. They were the ones that were always telling us, hey, buy our books. It's all part of one big story. But Lucas wasn't. Always being upfront about that. And I admit, I constantly look the other way. I, I look way to make it all work and to make it all because that was a great thing about star wars star wars had one story star trek was a new story every single book and that was a big selling point there for a long time well guess what star trek figured it out and after they had a which one was it uh first contact after that point every freaking book had a continuity they stuck with it hmm gee maybe because it was working I, yeah so i i mean i'm very passionate on this one i'm still trying to come to grips with it but I get angry because I have that feeling that they're not going to go back and fix those things that the EU had fixed. And instead, they're just going to say, well, the EU don't count. And we really don't care enough about the product to go back and fix the story plots. Because you know what? At the end of the day, it was George Lucas's and George is human. And that's part of the process. So there it is in fight for what it is. And I have a hard time with that. I really do. See, I'm not going to go so far as to say that it was a lie. But I guess I should work my way there. Um, on the broader point, yes. Yeah, I agree. I think that the Star Wars films have lost some of their depth because that's what the EU, in a sense, brought to the table. And I'm not even talking necessarily about the novelizations of the films, although in the case of Revenge of the Sith, a huge part of my enjoyment, as he mentioned there, the Stover effect, has been the depth of understanding what's going on, that it's not just Anakin shows up for the meeting they say, you're on the council, but we do not grant you the rank of master. And he starts whining because he's a petulant little sh or excuse me, a petulant little teen. And it's just like, or, well, he's acting like a teen. Um, and she's like, man, it's not fair. It's just like, it's Obi-Wan's fault. I'm going to throw stuff kind of stuff that it's actually there for a reason because he believes that, you know what? There is secret information inside the Jedi Temple archives that he could use to possibly save Padme, but he needs to be a master rank in order to be able to access that information. So by cutting him off from that, they're cutting him off from a source of information he thinks is his one way of saving Padme's life, which in a sense pushes him towards Sidious because it's cut off one of the only options he felt he had beyond getting the knowledge from a Sith. None of that, of course, is in the film. It's all there within what we get with Stover's novelization, uh, the internal struggles for him, all within Stover's novelization. Um, fortunately, I would say that some of that is still in continuity. Not all, but some. Um, they've said where it lines up with the films, the novelizations get to carry over into story group canon, which basically means where they don't, they don't carry over, which they never did, and where they add 
Sorry, that's not in the films. Presumably it doesn't come over. It's just Legends, as Mark was saying. Um, I wonder, though, what about sort of like the phrasing of things? Like if you have a scene in which we get inside Anakin's head because of the way the scene is written, and that exact same scene is showing up in the film, how much of Anakin's motivations can we take off the page? Because that part is just a novelization of what we see in the movie, as opposed to something like the whole deal with the Jedi Council's secret knowledge in the archives and stuff, and how that is something specifically added so that doesn't get carried over. Um, but I would say it's not even just the novelizations, though. Not even necessarily just novels. I mean, heck, go back to the RPG back in the early West End Games days. I mean, in a sense, we're left with a universe without definitive names of species, of planets, of technologies. Now, for the most part, we're finding with stuff like Tarkin and Heir to the Jedi and whatnot, for the most part, the species names are carrying over, the planet names are carrying over, the technology names are carrying over, um, but that's not something we can necessarily take for granted. Um, I used to love the fact that I could watch A New Hope, and when we walk into the cantina scene, I know these people. Right? I know who this is, I know who this is, I know who this one is, I know this one's background, I know this one because of a card, I know this one because they got a short story in Tales from the Most Icely Cantina. Hey, I know what this character's going to do over here, and hey, we're in Kalman's Cantina, not War's Cantina, War's just the bartender. Kalman, the Wookiee, actually runs the thing, actually owns the thing. For all we know, Kalman doesn't even exist anymore. For all we know, it's War's Bar now. Um, there's a huge amount of depth that has been removed. The problem is that you're going to have people making the argument that the depth that was removed is inconsequential. And a lot of it mm -hmm. is, right? Do we necessarily need to know the names of the two Duros inside the cantina? Do we need to know the name of each of the members of Jabba's band and what they were doing before they were Jabba's band. No. To understand the films? No. To get depth out of those scenes in the films? Not necessarily. But with that has come the rest of the depth, right? Until we get a solo Han movie, so to speak, um, where is the depth now for, you got a lot of guts coming here after what you pulled, and the whole story behind how Han got the Falcon by winning it off of Lando. None of mm -hmm. that's real anymore. All of that's legends now. That well, is and poof, gone. Does his backstory, Han being part of the Empire, that's completely legends too, right? None of that came from any canon source either? Right, right. The idea that okay. Han used to be like a TIE fighter pilot and that sort of thing, um, that's gone. I mean, there's even stuff we can't take for granted now based on things we thought we were flat out told. I mean, take Jango Fett, Clone Wars, Mandalorians, the new Mandalorians, said Jango was just a bounty hunter, a mercenary. He was not a Mandalorian. Now, that could mean the new Mandalorians didn't think of him that way, but the true Mandalorians would have, the Death Watch and such would have. I guess you can't call them true Mandalorians anymore. That term doesn't mm -hmm. exist. Um, just Death Watch would have thought of him as one of their own, even though, of course, we know within Legends continuity he was supposed to be their biggest enemy. No, mm -hmm. was Jango actually a Mandalorian or just some dude wearing the armor? And what effect does that have on the culture and heritage that we think of when we think of the clones? Certainly a lot of the Mandalorian stuff is gone. So yeah, depth-wise, we've got depth that was building from 1977, actually 76 if you want to take the novelization of A New Hope into account, all the way up through this year, all the way up through at least chunks of 2014 that's now gone. 
at least from the standpoint of this new story group canon. So inevitably, yeah, a lot of the depth of the saga in general and of the films themselves has been stripped away. Um, it becomes much more like seeing the films for the first times back in the 80s in yeah. a lot of ways. Um, well, I a always, fresh canvas. I always say it was the films that were reset, not Legends in that regard. Legends still stays the way it always was. It's now our perceptions of the films themselves that have been rebooted. Yeah, it's them basically saying, look, you've got this old continuity and we built it over time, but now there's this alternate one. And that's where I have to disagree about this whole idea that Leland Chi and Sue Rostoni and them were lying, per se. They never gave us any type of reason to believe, because they clarified it every chance they got, that the films and the legend stuff was all on par with each other. Um, even before, and I covered this on the Star Wars Timeline Gold, that's, that's why it had an understanding canon type section. It's why one of the first episodes as a special edition I ever did for my first podcast, Chrono Radio, was the canon question that went into all the, the, the descriptions of how to visualize the way canon worked within Star Wars. Because even before they had a G-level canon, T-level canon, C, uh, S, N kind of structure, they were making decisions based on a canon structure. They just weren't telling us what to call any of it. The films were always trumping anything within the other media unless Lucasfilm came with a specific decree saying that it could, um, like Boba Fett surviving. Um, they were always coming in and basically coming up with ways to say, okay, well, the special editions trump the original version of the films now. Or, yeah, the films have Yoda as green. This novelization says Yoda is blue. Of course Yoda is green. The films trump the novelizations of the films and so on and so on. There was always a structure essentially in place, whether they acknowledged it or not. Yeah. It was there, and you could see it every time they made these individual decisions about what trumped what when something contradicted. And all throughout that time, Lucas was out there talking about how this is essentially an alternate universe, how there's his saga and then there's this. But to us, in a lot of ways, we thought, oh, well, he's not saying alternate universe, alternate universe. He's basically just saying there's his version, and there's the version without other stuff around it. People thought of it as like core versus the whole thing. That's not what Lucas was saying. Lucas the entire time was saying alternate universe. We yeah. were the ones saying that that shouldn't be interpreted to mean exactly what he says it means. Um, then again, this is also the guy that changed his idea of what Balance of the Force meant by the time he got to the Mortis trilogy. Um, but Leland Chi, Sue Arstein, all of them basically saying, look, this is Lucas's playground. What he creates trumps what we create, but we're creating an official continuation approved by Lucasfilm with Lucas's nod that this is what the official thing is. But even going back to the old RPG stuff and some of the earliest comics letters pages, they were saying repeatedly, look, if Lucas comes in and tries to create something like a sequel trilogy, it's going to shatter all of this stuff because that is Lucas's choice. He is the one who controls that version of the saga. But the fact that he had said for so long, no, I'm not going to do a sequel trilogy. In fact, he went to a point saying he always conceived it as a series of six films, which causes anybody writing back in the 80s and the interviews he did and Mark Hamill did and others did about there being a sequel trilogy causes them to shake their heads like, what the F? Um, <laughs> it was always Anakin's story. Yeah, exactly. Um, they were always brother and sister. But, yeah. But when he was saying that, we were given an impression, a false impression, that the saga that we knew and loved was essentially sarcosanct. That 
it was Legends and it would be the official continuity because the thing that could come in and shatter it wouldn't. Granted, we saw the prequels shake a lot of things up, but that had been an off-limits time period for a long time. Then the Clone Wars comes in and shatters that era into a huge mess, but we're just like, okay, Maybe someday they'll fix it and try to give us an explanation of how it's supposed to fit, whatever. It, it's just a little three-year stretch of a mess. But then you can't do a sequel trilogy without shattering it, assuming that you don't want them to wind up following the books, and we've gone into all the different options they had for that. So I think, if there, see, is a, I think if there is a lie, if there is a point-of-view, Obi-Wan-esque twisting of words like the joke I made at the beginning about your father's lightsaber... I think it was Lucas's line when they announced episode seven, eight, and nine and the Disney buyout saying, I said I wasn't going to make any more films. I never said somebody else couldn't. Because that distinction was not something that he ever drew, and the emphasis was never on, I won't make any more Star Wars films. The emphasis was, it's a six episode saga, that's it, now I'm just making these cartoons. Well, and I remember Chi also saying, though, that once the Clone Wars was done, we were going to have resolution to Clone Wars and the Clone Wars. And that never happened. And and I mean, I don't 100% think that there was a lie, but I think that there's a marketing behind it, and that can be perceived as the lie. Like with what Leland said about the Clone Wars and stuff, I'm sure they intended to. All the way up until it was like, okay, there's no hope of doing this. And at that point, they just left it quiet. But there are people out there that, that could see it or feel like they've been lied to based on on the perception of facts, I guess. I, I know that I've run across some people that are very, very venomous about it and what we've been told and haven't told. But like I said, I, I get to that that the Canon Wars site and it's like oh, almost 40 something pages on this. And, and it's just insane the level of back and forth and the, and the cross statements that were going down. But like you say, you know, I mean, Lucas was always upfront with us. We were just interpreting things in totally different ways. We have a tendency to want to interpret things the way that they help us the most, I guess. I mean, it's kind of like me right now when I'm working on the star Wars timeline goal, we have never been given any reason to believe necessarily. I don't think that the old Republic MMO is story group canon because GameSpot did that interview with members of the creative team who flat out said no i mean it's it's legends like anything else it continues on with the previous continuity now they're starting to put that somewhat up in the air same thing with the fantasy fight game stuff it was produced before the switch you got stuff in there like center point station and whatnot but at the same time it's being produced now without the legends banner on it to me it makes more sense it is perhaps easier and more straightforward to simply say it started as Legends, it stays as Legends. I'm going to keep adding it to that part of the timeline until I hear different. Mm-hmm. Someone else could just as easily say, well, I'm not seeing the Legends label on it. I'm not going to take into account anything published before a certain date and just assume everything published after that date must be Story Group canon and start adding that to that version of the timeline. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of we, – we basically try to take what we hear – and we, for the most part, try to interpret it as accurately as we can. But I think there's always some level of subjectivity. You know, yeah. there's always some level of where our own opinion is going to influence things one way or the other. If you're someone who's always believed in an all-encompassing saga, you're going to try to want to say everything still can somehow fit. Like those folks who are saying, well, here's this novel this could still fit in story group canon. Why can't we carry this over? Why can't we carry the Darth Plagueis novel over and stuff like that? Um, 
all we can really do is rely on those official statements and try to understand best what there is, be intellectually honest. The problem right now is that there's not a lot of clarity, as we talked about in our mm-hmm. our last of our year-in-review episodes. When it comes to certain games and whatnot, especially, the clarity's not there yet. And with them basically saying, hey, you can't ask Leland Chi direct questions about continuity anymore, it's got to go through PR department. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of that give and take that used to be our way of understanding things as it unfolded is gone. Back then it was nitpicky questions. What about this character in this scene doing this thing? Now it's something as simple as, how about this product line, dude? Where does it go? And we can't ask. Well, you know, in April they said, from this point on, all books and stuff coming out are going to be canon. And then, boom, here comes Imperial Handbook, which has no Legends label, which was the other thing they said. Oh, well, if it's Legends, we're going to put Legends on it so you'll know. But you didn't. (laughs) And you notice (laughs) we got to tell us that. It wasn't Dan Wallace saying that because Dan didn't know at the time. I asked him straight out. Didn't know at the time. It was Becker and Mayer, I think is the name of the publisher, on their Facebook page saying, oh yeah, it's Legends. Yeah. But thank you. I'm glad somebody gave us some level of, of clarity. And I, I got from, uh, you know, Delray was saying, ask them. They're, we're not the publisher, which I was like, well, but StarWars.com is the one that said that we would it would all fit. What the hell? <sighs> Wow, we've really gone on quite a bit on a couple of letters. Um, let's keep going. I got a feeling we may wind up splitting this up into bits and pieces, but I've got the time, I guess. Our next one comes in from John, who has the subject line here, Dark Horse, End of an Era. Of course, that's one of the episodes that we dealt with, so tying back into that uh, retrospective that we did, of course. Hi, Nathan and Mark. I love the last episode about Dark Horse and agree in a lot of ways with your opinions on the story group canon but I just wanted to pitch in a couple of comic titles which I thought were really profound. Beyond Purge and the other titles mentioned in the show, my favorites include Empire, issues 16 to 18 with Janik Summer for its depiction of life within the Imperial Stormtrooper Corps, Legacy, issue 4 with Joker Squad for the same reason, and most strongly, Trooper, which was featured in Star Wars Tales number 10 with that line, quote, Pa had the freedom he was born with, the other guy had a blaster which really delves into the mentality of those in and around the Empire. Looking into the FET history, I agreed with Mark's choice of open seasons, especially the confrontation with Dooku's Jedi Task Force and Boba slash Jango blood ties, mostly for the artwork, but also for the exploration of clone deserters. At the top of my list will always be the Jabim series, and Darth Vader and the Ghost Prison, with Empire Betrayal tacked on below for its introduction of Trachta, and its Brutus slash Cassius slash Casca-esque assassination plot. I can't say for sure, but the new Kanan origin comic series looks interesting enough, even if it does develop Depa Balaba as a hero, not a villain. But that's what Kanan does. Turns Barris into a traitor, and the traitor Balaba into a hero. By the way, on the topic of Star Wars comic packs, do you know how they chose which characters to include? Sometimes our friends at Hasbro did a great job putting Asherod Het, Kofi Arana, Janik Sunber, and Tholm into action figure form. But putting Anakin into the Jabim pack? Really? Anyways, thanks for the great podcast, guys. Sincerely, John Kuntz, an ever-faithful Star Wars fan. Well, actually, I'm, I'm looking at that Anakin one, and the only reason why I like it so much is because came. I got that one with the Obi-Wan, and they look all gritty and stuff like they did. That was such a brilliant comic. Oh, I love that one. You know, what's funny is a few years ago, I mean, it's been a while now, I did a series back when I was doing segments more regularly for Star Wars Action News. I did a segment series 
that dealt with a handful of comic packs each time and covered eventually every single comic pack that Dark Horse slash Hasbro put out. And you would not believe the number of freaking Anakins that show up in there. I was tracking them as we went so that by the end of the series it was, okay, we got this many Anakins, this many that are Vader slash Anakin, and this many of... And how many characters got reused over and over again. I, I'm not sure there was rhyme or reason to it other than to say... Sometimes they wanted to do something cool and new, which is where they chose Kyle and the Yuzhan Vong that wound up with my story getting in there. It had nothing to do with the comic. It had to do with them wanting to make those figures um, that happened to be in the comic. But also, I think a lot of times it was what figures do we have that we can either reissue or just briefly repaint and reissue without having to create new molds for some of them. Because there were a lot of them that were just reused figures, quite frankly. Yeah, I have 19 of them up above my wall, and oh, I, they were one of the ones that I really got into, and I don't open them. Um, I love the uh, Dark Empire with the clone emperor, and it came with the holocron. It's got Voto Bosk and stuff. Uh, I've got a few of the Quinlan Voss ones, too, which I was glad that they had the one with Vili, because I remember when I got the first one, I wished that it came with the Vili, and then found out they had the Vili one after the fact. Uh, I do not have Darth Krayat, though. I do have Cade Skywalker, Darth Talon, uh, Draco, and Ganner. But the other Legends one and then uh, even the uh, ones from Open Seasons. Oh, those looked glorious. I wasn't able to get those either. Oh, there's so many good ones out there that I still want to get. Uh, getting back to what you're saying, though, uh, the Janik Sumner, that was a really fun run. And what's funny, I remember when we we were talking about the episodes for it as we were running down on it, the reread, I really got a kick out of it. My first time through, like, I didn't remember it being much of anything. And I think, you know, if we're talking about doing an episode next year about the differences in single trades and books and, and omnibuses and the different formats and stuff. But I think it's always an interesting point as the consumer on my end when I realized that, you know, I, I got a kick out of reading it as a single issue, but it was a totally different experience than when I sat down and read it all together in the trade form or in, you know, the omnibus or whichever format I had it at that time. But when I went back and reread it all complete it was such a different experience than that one week at a time or one month at a time or in dark times case that six months at a time between issues. I mean, that can really kill uh, your stories. Uh, another one that you mentioned was the Joker squad, a character that I absolutely loved from legacy was the Hondo car. Uh, and he was the trooper that was a Mandalorian who ended up becoming a rogue, uh, for the for the uh, alliance, uh, just a great story. A character who out there, I really wish his fate would finally have been told, but he's an open plot point. Uh, but you brought up a really interesting point that I had never thought about before. About you know, you say, uh, but that's what canon does: turn Barris into a traitor and a traitor Bilba into a hero. Absolutely spot on on that observation, and I never even had thought about that before until you said that. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's what canon does. It takes characters we knew and loved, or at least knew. And changes what the heck happened to them. Uh, some of them are alive when they should have been dead. I'm looking at you, Eathcoth, for instance. Um, heck, that was going on within Legends thanks to Clone Wars. Anyway, I guess we could say that's what Lucas does. Although now it's Lucas's surrogates and whatnot. Speaking of Dark Horse, and something we somewhat have already covered, but uh, it sort of bears repeating because of something that popped up at the end of the year that I called months ago. We have an email here from Bruce Gibson who says... Hi, Nathan and Mark. I have a few Dark Horse Star Wars comics, and I hate the idea that their past publications are going to be harder to buy. Before the Dark Horse store closes on our favorite franchise, what would you consider must-haves? 
I may have some of them already, but I want to open my wallet to buying comics well worth getting. Keep up the great show, Bruce Gibson. Well, on the upside, I would say all the ones you must have are probably going to be the ones that Marvel is going to be printing and reprinting up the wazoo right out the gate. Uh, and it's, gosh, it's, it's even difficult to say must have anymore because it's like, well, canon's new now, so you don't really must have the Dark Empire. I mean, if you're going to stick with Legends, you must have Dark Empire. You've got to know about Luke's trip to the dark side. It's referenced a lot in the books, so you got to know about that one. Uh, I would say you got to get Legends stories of uh, the KOTOR era. Um, I would definitely go with that. Some of the Tales of the Jedi stories that you can find, there's a lot of really cool stories there. Um, Legacy, of course, is, you know, I, I would say the first volume anyway is a must-have. Second one, you might not need to need it, but I would still highly recommend, though, the uh, Republic line. Uh, as much of that as you could get, it's what later becomes the uh, the Dark Horses uh, Clone Wars, basically, and then it goes into Dark Times. It's the longest run of all the stuff they have because it's got so many different titles in it. Uh, it starts out with Prelude to Rebellion. You know, it's got all the Quinlan Voss type stuff, uh, the Aurora Singh stuff. There, there was just a lot of really cool adventures along the way, and as a complete series, that one would definitely be a must-have. Uh, Empire was a good little run as well. In fact, the thing I like about Empire was uh, the Vader and the Ghost Prison one kind of gave the characters in that one more of a reason for me to really enjoy them uh, on my on my read through the second time through. So those are all my must-haves, Nate. Um, I'm going to say Tales of the Jedi, uh, KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic, that is, uh, Legacy Volume 1, Dark Empire 1, though not necessarily Dark Empire 2 or Empire's End, um, and probably X-Wing, though you could skip the Rebel Opposition. I mean, pick it up, but I never thought that that was necessarily a great one. The good news, I guess, and this is something that won't make a difference probably by the time you hear this episode, but something that we've been talking about on our Facebook page quite a bit, so hopefully you've seen it through there. Uh, Dark Horse is doing a big digital comic sale right now. I mean, if you don't mind getting digital comics instead of physical ones, they got a big thing going on where, you know, it's it's like I called it, months ago, right, saying, you know, with the digital comics, what they really need to do is at the end of the year do something for getting comics super, super cheap so they make maybe a tiny bit of profit, but hey, it's some profit before it goes to Marvel. Um, they're doing a thing now where pretty much all their Star Wars comics are 50% off, or you can buy the entire library of 568 digital comics through Dark Horse. And some of these are trade paperbacks, some of these are omnibus, some of these are single issues, but 568, every single Star Wars digital comic Dark Horse has ever put out through their app for 300 bucks. So if you don't have them, it's a great way to get it. If you divide that out, it's something like 50 some odd cents per issue, but even that isn't really true. It's a lot better of a value because so many of them are omnibus editions. Um, I would say if you're going to go digital in particular, or even if you were going to go physical, Another thing that I would definitely add in there, sort of, is the Marvel series. The original Marvel series isn't terrific, but if you're interested in that era of Star Wars publishing, it's a cool series to check out, and it seems like now that they're being republished by Marvel starting next year, they'll be in these big overpriced hardbacks, whereas through Dark Horse, you can get the omnibus editions that have a lot in one very compact, cost-effective issue. So, personally, um, I would toss that in there probably too. Well, and two things too that you mentioned, uh, the one thing is this is their 
digital collection. This isn't all the comics that Dark Horse made, which was something that jumped right out at me. Uh, and then the other one was the Digest. Um, that's actually one that I'm kind of in a panic about because I'm like, I really care enough to try to get them all, hunt them all down. I know there's a lot of them. They were the last thing I was collecting when it came to the comics. You know, I was getting all the the trades that I didn't have that were out there from before I started really getting into the comics for Star Wars. You know, I was a big Marvel fan. Uh, so that was where my money was going at the time. So now it's like, do I rush out to try to get as many of those digests? Because the digests had more cartoony artwork. Uh, and, and there's very few where you hear the stories that are like, oh, you got to go out and read that one. You know, I mean, uh, there's one that we plan on talking about next year that ties into some stories that we've been talking about and that made me think about that. I was like, you know, I totally forgot I even had that. Uh, and then there's the ones like uh, Luke Skywalker and the Dragon Snake, where there's this whole scene with Yoda talking to R2, where you find out that Yoda does indeed remember R2, and R2 does remember Yoda, and the two of them agree to keep it a secret, and why, and little things like that. And I'm like, oh, oh, you know, are there any others out there like that that I don't already have? So I go back and forth, but 300 bucks for all of it, it's like, Feels like it might be a good deal, but I already have all the stuff, so I'm like, I would never pay that much for it. And I don't know, I, I hear other people out there talking about other places you can get it and stuff, and I'm just like, I don't know. I don't have good advice here. Sorry, guys. Yeah, honestly, if I had the money, I probably would. In fact, we thought we had the money until all the car stuff happened. Um, I considered it. Honestly, it's kind of ironic to me that you can get that entire library for 300 bucks because that's basically what I spent back in college to buy the entire Marvel series in physical form back then. <laughs> um, almost exactly to the dollars, like 300-something by the time it was done because I had to get a separate auction to get the one annual that wasn't with the, the huge set that I bought. Um, I don't know. I think it's a pretty good value, but bear in mind... A, yes, you still have access to those comics once 2015 starts if you do the digital thing because they have the license to keep putting them out because that is something you previously bought. It's it's a different thing than selling something new. You just won't be able to buy any new digital Star Wars comics through them. It does beg the question, are Star Wars digital comics going to start showing up with Comixology's app? Probably so once they're being republished through Marvel. Through Marvel Unlimited? Quite possibly, which we can talk about when we're going to talk about that episode dealing with different formats and what not to choose from that was suggested by Jameson Glass. I have to say, honestly, if you haven't picked up any, and you're just curious about it, you're not trying to collect, you just have a story you're interested in reading, right now it's probably more cost-effective to do the quick digital half-price thing for that one particular issue. Uh, one thing I will say, though, in relation to this and... At least the Timelines Facebook page where people were talking about it. I didn't take anything off of the Beyond the Films page. But we're not in the business of actively promoting bootlegging or whatever you want to call it. So if the suggestion is, well, if you want to read Star Wars comics, why don't you go use BitTorrent and download everything and not pay a cent? Just from a moral standpoint, I have to say no. The few times that I get something sent to me like that, it's usually, hey, here's this comic that you can't read in the U.S. yet. Here's this version of it to check out from the U.K. And then once it's published in the U.S., I dump the image files. Or I download you know, the rules files that you can actually do officially through Fantasy Flight Games' website to get a sense of some of these games before I play them. And as soon as the games themselves actually show up, I drop the PDF file because now I've got it in physical form. I actually own the thing. Um, it, it's... 
I think it's disingenuous if we are going to be a series of podcasts or me doing the timeline or whatever and say that we care about the future of this franchise to actively promote bootlegging anything. Now, that is not to say that if somebody winds up dropping a camcordered copy of The Force Unleashed on my desk one day before it's out on DVD that I won't be tempted to watch it. But I think that there's something to be said for, you know, buying something that has been legally produced in a legal way because that's the way that the profits all get funneled. I mean, granted, I haven't seen, I, I don't see a cent of profit if somebody is out there at this point buying Star Wars Tales 21 or the comic pack with a story in it. Um, that ship sailed a long time ago, but still the publisher gets the money from it. It's how they stay in business. You know, protest all you want by saying, well, I'm just not going to buy such and such. But I think that is a different choice than bootlegging something. I think saying, I'm not going to buy another Star Wars comic from Marvel because I don't like that continuity. I want to support Legends versus saying, I'm not going to buy something from Marvel, but I'll go online and download it illegally and read it that way. That way I'm getting the fun out of it, but they're not getting, their, getting the money from it. Screw you, Marvel. This is my protest. I think that is a dick move. Yeah, and I'm informed while I complain. <laughs> yeah, I I think the only things I have that are that are of that nature is the holiday special, and they were all gifts. Uh, a friend of mine gave me a, a copy he had burnt me of the holiday special. I have that, and then someone had sent me the image files for uh, the Prelude to Rebellions little uh, zero issue, which was never in any print, and it was uh, offered up on hyperspace, I believe, once long ago, and then it all got taken down. Uh, and and I, was, I was going on about it. I was trying to find it, and I couldn't find a copy. And someone yeah. was like, oh, well, this is why. And they sent me the images. So I was all like, ooh, which, in fact, they're even on our Facebook page uh, under the album of that because I was just like, hey, these are here if anyone ever wants to see it. Yeah, I don't know if that's bad. Like, to be is said, the man going to kill me? There's something to be said for things that – you know, never get released like the holiday special or uh, like trying to get one's hands on episodes of Ewoks and droids, you know, that weren't put into those bastardized film versions of them that they put out and whatnot. Um, I oddly enough, I, the one area in which I kind of sit back and sort of sort of kind of give it like a, a shake of my head is the whole film thing, because it, I guess it depends to me in my mind. A lot of times it depends on motive, like, if someone is downloading a film so they can watch it without paying to see it, that's one thing. Once the film is out of theaters, but you know you're going to buy probably multiple copies of the same movie when it finally comes out, having something downloaded in the middle for some reason to me is more of a, a gray area because it's not available at the time and you know you're going to spend the money on it. Like at this point, I mean, I look at my shelves. I think I've got something like almost 40 copies of A New Hope. At this point, I think I'm good with that. I think, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just another <laughs> of these sort of things where it's a question, I guess, again, of, of perception. It's subjective. It's a matter of how one justifies to themselves. But I think that there's something, to, there's a difference between, hey, here's this I've got now, but I'm definitely going to get them the money for it later. And I've spent a ton of money going to see it in the theaters over and over and over again versus, hey, here's this thing I never intend to buy, but I'll get it free online. And at the same time, probably still bitch about those being the people with the license kind of thing. You know, there's a uh, there, there's a measure of to me one is they're both somewhat disingenuous, but I think one's more disingenuous than the other. It's a judgment call, I guess. Indeed. 
Now this is kind of running a little long, so we're going to go ahead and cut this one in two. That about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar hey but no matter how you get there be sure to like our facebook page it's one of the best ways to interact with us it's our own home one if you will not only can you post comments to us about the show we love interacting with you fellow fans so if you have any star wars and or eu slash legends questions or you just want to comment about a past episode fire off we can always get your emails if you send them directly to swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, our sponsors will give you a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any audiobook within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, four stars beyond the films. This is Ben, Mark, and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that my view on the whole film versus comic bootlegging thing and the nuances that were lost in there will get me called a hypocrite. Probably rightly so. <laughs> or the odds that... We're going to see some more legends. Come on, Hondo Car. say that again because I it up twice. Damn it, I said it again. Oh for the love of God. Okay. I'm like, oh my crap is going off. You're gonna you're gonna hate editing this one. I'm sorry. <laughs> you wanna okay. can you we, drop uh, the next uh, one in? The... There's no oh. way I could I could drop it in. I tried. <laughs> I tried. I tried. Alright. Email it to me later. <laughs> Alright, I'm back. I'm gonna go kill some <laughs> Using Halo to keep you from trying to want to kill somebody over your week. Wow! Seriously, the Arbiter's Sword is just awesome. Oh, still died. But the Arbiter's Sword is awesome. Says the guy who. By the power of Arbiter's Sword, go. I have awesome. the power! Alright, so. So this may have I miss, to be an miss out. having an empty Gatorade bottle every now and again. Worse, I gotta <laughs> take a leak. I don't want to run. This may have to be a, an outtake, but may I say, I almost was killed by a Dianoga. <laughs> I walked into the bathroom, and we've got two cats, and 
we, you know, you scoop the litter, and it's that kind of scoopable litter that you can actually put down the toilet because most of the litter falls off, and it's just the turds and all. Well, apparently one of them decided not to go down last time I hit flush, and I didn't notice it, so I opened up the toilet to take a leak, and there's this thing sitting there staring at me. <laughs> like, what the hell? Yes, it's the Dianoga, the turd Dianoga. <laughs>